But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the central conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among the day, after day he was tormenting his righteous soul of their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Thank you, Amanda. Yeah, as Amanda said last time, I give Amanda the wrong passage. If you think that's bad, two weeks ago, Tony asked me to stand in for him and preach at a church. He couldn't do it on the evening, so he asked me. I'm his stunt double, look similar. <laughs> so I said, yeah, sure, of course I will. So I got to walk to the church. I was wearing shorts and a, a kind of flimsy T-shirt, and it's a brethren church. So I've walked in there, and I've just said, listen, it's great to be here. Give me two minutes. I'm going to get changed into something proper. I don't want to offend nobody. They're all looking at me a bit strange. I sit down, and the guy up front goes, right, we're going to speak for, but I'm going to pray for the preacher. So he starts off, and he says, Lord, we ask that you bless Andrew. <laughs> I was sat in the wrong church. <laughs> <laughs> So let's hope tonight goes better than my last couple of attempts. I did manage to get to the other church, though. Just blamed it on traffic. <laughs> I phoned Ian after. I said, can you pick me up? He said, from Shipley, you can walk home. I said, I'm in Leeds. <laughs> you better come and get me. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, Phil asked me to preach tonight on 2 Peter chapter 2. And we decided between us that we were going to split it over two weeks. It's a big chunk. It's a heavy bit of scripture. So we're going to do it this week. Next week, you've got Tony's friend from Bahrain coming. So it'll be the week after when I'll follow up the second part of 2 Peter. This is what happens when you get old, but you can only found pound shop. This is it. I am getting old, by the way. My eyes have gone. So I'll be taking them off on and off. So let's pray first. Heavenly Father, we ask that you will bless us tonight. And Lord, when <clears throat> we do survey that wondrous cross, Lord, our 
that strips us away of any pride and restores us from a valueless position. Lord, that wondrous cross don't make us boast and it don't make us self-hate but it brings us to the foot, to the feet, on our knees, to the glorious and wonderful Son, your Saviour and my Saviour, the world's Saviour. So Lord bless us tonight, in your Son's name, Amen. So tonight, the title for tonight is Wolf in Sheep's Clothing. And Peter, is a, this is a warning, this is a warning from Peter to the flock. Soren Kierkegaard, the Christian thinker, he said this regarding warning of danger. He said, it happened that a fire broke out in a theatre and the clown came back to the stage to inform the public. They thought it was a jest and applauded. It repeated the warning and they shouted even louder. So I think the world will come to an end amid great applause from all the wits who believe that's a joke. I hope you don't believe I'm a wit tonight. I don't think that you're wits. I hope you don't think I'm a clown. <coughs> and I don't think you're clowns either. I hope that you know I'm a God-fearing, God-loving person who tries to uphold the truth of the doctrine of Christ. But this warning from Peter is a grave danger towards the truths we hold as the Christian faith. These eternal truths of Jesus Christ and God's plan for redemption. But I think that story from Kierkegaard tells me two things. It tells me, one, that we don't deal with warnings like we should. I think that always goes. Like, we always feel that we're invincible. So we don't heed warnings especially well. That will never happen to me. Maybe that's just me, but I'm always quite lackadaisical with things. Like, I never worry about my own safety. Somebody says, oh, I shouldn't walk in that area. And what happened to me? I never think that. I'm going to perish. And I'm sure that happens for us all, that no one thinks that. But I think that's true as well of our ideas. That we think, actually, nobody can change my mind. I know what I know, and I know that I'm right. Maybe that's one of me who just thinks that, but I do think I'm right all the time. And no one's going to change my mind. And I don't heed warnings to, to danger. I remember when I went to Bible college three years ago, the warnings that I got regarding other people's thoughts, teachings, and I was like, yeah, bring it on. But once you're in an environment, your thoughts start to change, you start to question, you start to think. And sometimes you can pick up bad thinking 
bad theology, bad doctrine. And I were in a great church, great Bible-believing church, and I'd say that we're all quite rigid in our thoughts. And if we're not, that's Pastor Phil's fault. He teaches us, right? But we are. And I'm sure the people who Peter read to thought they were invincible as well. So tonight, I want us to really take heed of Peter's warning. But first, let's give this book a bit of context. In chapter 1, verses 12 to 21, Peter gives his apostolic authority. He says, you know who's writing to you, don't you? The guy who was with Jesus. The guy who saw him crucified, resurrected. In fact, I was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Like, remember who's writing to you now. This is just not another letter. This is an apostle of Christ. So you take heed. He says, this is holy scripture. Just like Paul's writings, which he says in chapter 3, 15 to 16, he says, Paul's writings are also scripture. Holy scripture. What you've got now in front of you is holy scripture. You take heed of what's on this piece of paper, along with Paul's. We know from the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, that he's writing to the same audience that he was writing to in 1 Peter. He said, you know, I've wrote to you before, this is my next letter. So we know that it's to the same people. We know that he listed all the churches in 1 Peter. So we know which area it's going to. It's going to Asia Minor. This is modern day Turkey. It's going to have to be wrote around 67, 68 AD because Peter was believed to have died in Nero's persecution, which was 68. So most people think this was actually written from his prison in Rome. And he was so worried about this flock getting influenced by false teaching. Because as we'll see in two weeks' time, false teaching leads to false behaviour and bad behaviour, an immoral life. And although Peter was to be a minister to Jews and Paul to the Gentiles, we know that this is a letter to the Gentiles. It says it in verse chapter 1, verse 1. You who also came and got the riches that we've got already. We know that this is a, a Gentile contingent. And this purpose of the letter is to equip the saints with a mindset that can defend their faith, their beliefs, and their doctrine against false teachers. This is not a passive letter. It is a letter to say, right, I am equipping you to defend He needs to remind the saints that what you believe has direct implication on how you live. If you believe the truth about Christ, your life will be one of holiness. 
You believe falsehood and your life will be filled with the passions of the flesh. I believe that. Even though this is a warning about heresy and false teachers, it doesn't exactly give what there could be. But it gives us an implication of what they probably were. And these false teachings seemingly are around the issue of Christ was real, is real, and but eternally real. This is in chapter 1, 16 to 18. I witnessed Jesus. This is what I witnessed about him. This is also to reiterate that Christ was fully divine and fully human. So we might have any, these issues that we could have, but he needs to make this clear. In chapter 3, 8 to 13, the second coming of Christ. The teaching could have been Christ is not coming back. Or there was a teaching that had already been back. So Paul says no. I'm sorry, Peter says no. We're going to wait. And we're going to wait because he is coming again. And then the Christian character. We see this in chapter 1, 3 to 11. And 3, 17 to 18. That the heresy could have been. If you call yourself Christians, why are you acting like that? Because we've been told you can act how you want. And for me, I think these are the four big heresies. Christ's divinity and his humanness, the second coming and the character of a Christian. So my three points tonight... Ah, a warning to those who teach falsely. We're going to look at some modern day heresies and then we're going to look at the antidote. Does that sound good? Great. <laughs> I, love, I love Sundays, not only because I get to see my, my, my church family, but it's a special day for me. Because every Sunday I go and sit me and Betty have something to eat. And Betty fills me up, so I've got full of energy. <laughs> so everyone could be here for a long time tonight, I tell you. So, you know you're in Yorkshire when the preacher's drinking tea at 28 degrees to cool himself down. So a warning and judgment, verses 1 and 2. This is what Peter says. Whoever teaches falsely and what they teach tantamounts to blasphemy and will face destruction. Like... Peter's saying, what you're doing is not just wrong, but it's blasphemy. It's an offence to God. It's such an offence to God, he's not going to let it slip. And he will bring about your destruction. 
Like if you need an opening line for a warning, that is going to be the opening line. Because it makes you stop in your tracks. Peter says, let me tell you how serious false teaching and false living is in the eyes of God. He cast out angels. He destroyed the earth and Sodom and Gomorrah. They all received divine justice for false teaching and ungodly ways. Do you think you're going to get away with what you're doing? You who teach falsely. Like, Peter is getting straight in there and not messing about. For him, it is such an issue because he knows how much of an issue it is for God and what God's going to do, do by it. Now, we say in an age, live and let live, right? You can think what you want and say what you want as long as it don't bother me. Me, Cassa, you, Cassa, everybody gets along. Peter said, no, yeah, you might think that, but God doesn't think that. Because who teaches blasphemy is going to end up like the angels, like Sodom and Gomorrah. There's no middle path with Peter. Whether we like this or not, in this modern day age, where it's everybody for themselves, as long as you don't hurt anybody, we've got to respect each other's boundaries, and however we might judge this political climate at this point in time, trust me, if Peter were writing a letter now, he'd be writing the same letter. God will and does judge false teachers is deadly serious to those who distort his word and live a life of defiling passion with lust. If you teach falsehood, we know you'll be judged. And if you're a teacher, we know you're going to be judged harsher than anybody else. James 3.1 tells us this. The shepherd, the teacher, don't worry about them. They'll get judged harder. They're going to get judged worse and tougher on the day of judgment. And at Sunbridge Road, we take this deadly seriously. Because as Peter makes clear, what you teach from the front will and should lead the people of God in a direction like the reins and a mouthpiece steer a horse. Pastor Phil does not get up there every Sunday morning and preach so it'll have no effect on our lives. Like he's teaching so our lives aren't affected. He wants to steer us in a direction. A direction we have entrusted him with and God has placed him in that position. But it's not pointless preaching. It is for a reason. And I believe that in this church and definitely pastors preaching is a preaching that wants to build up and steer the people of God into godly living. If I can say anything about pastors preaching, 
any sincerity and the other people who preach at this church, it is that. To build up and live godly. Like this real holiness community, I believe, from the pulpit. And you know our characters, us who do preach, we do fear God, we do love God. And we want our teachings to reflect the truth about God. You know, we search the scriptures diligently. We earnestly pray for the Holy Spirit to reveal the truth to us. We have our eldership to encourage us, but correct us when we're wrong. That's their job. And I know how many sermon police we have in audience. They all come up and tell me afterwards. This is what we're supposed to do, right? But this applies to you as well. well. See, when you say something about God, you're doing theology. When you say something about God, you're claiming some truth about our Lord Jesus Christ. And does what you say line up with Scripture and lead people to Jesus, our godly living? Or does what you say lead them into worldly flesh? See, when you witness and share Christ with somebody, you're adopting a role of teacher. It's important that we all watch, protect and affirm each other in what we believe, teach and proclaim, so we don't fall into the pit of false teacher. But you know me and I know you, and I think if we say something wrong, I'm going to say 99 out of 10 times it's a genuine mistake. And we're not talking about genuine mistakes tonight. I don't believe anybody in here would intentionally start to deceive somebody with heresies and false teachings to lead them astray. But there's a warning for there, nonetheless. I don't want anybody going on thinking, if I think the wrong thing, I'm going to hell, I'm taking somebody else to hell. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about intentionally deceiving. I've been wrong a lot of times. It's hard to imagine for some of you. But trust me, I have. and been corrected many a times. I've even sat down and listened to Phil for hours telling me. And in my head I'm still thinking, I'm right. I search the scriptures, I find out that I'm wrong. Like, this is what we do. But let's be diligent and make sure that we're a people who teach correctly as to not to fall into judgment. My second point is going to be on Edis's. After we've got that warning out, Peter's warning at the beginning. You teach wrong, destruction. Right, okay, Peter. We get on to the Edis's. I'm going back to my favourite thinker again Son Kierkegaard said this there's two ways to be fooled one is to believe what is not true and the other is to refuse to believe what is true and this is my second point Peter tells us in 2.1 that the false teachers are among us 
They're within reach. They're in the body of Christ. They're not somewhere out there plotting to attack us. He says, just as the prophets were with them as the old, so the false teachers among you. See, it's easy to protect yourself from a known enemy or foe. You know who they are, you know what they look like, you know what they say. But to protect yourself from somebody who acts like you, talks like you, and worships with you, is very, very difficult. And true orthodox doctrine and the very lives of those sat next to us depend on that we can identify the false teachers within amongst us. It's paramount that we can re recognize and reject false teaching because Peter says it'll lead to destruction. And Peter tells us in verse 3 that they're active among you. It's like he's saying, listen, they're among you and searching and seeking out and they're active to dissuade you. This is not somebody who thinks something differently than me in Nicaragua. This is somebody who's wanting to deceive me within my own body of believers. I think that in this church we've got great teachings and as with modern day churches we <clears throat> stand on our own and because of the teaching we're maybe not aware of heresies that are operating today within Christianity around us. And to be honest, it wasn't until I got to Bible college of all places that I thought everyone's an heretic here. <laughs> That's where I learnt it. And that's where I learnt these heresies. And I, I want to go through them and point out. Because I want to make you aware of what they could be. Paul's given, sorry, Peter's given some indication of certain heresies that are probably going on. And my first one is Phil nicked it this morning. He spoke about it for 10 minutes. I was devastated. I thought he'd been looking over my shoulder. But he did say, you've got to hit hardwood twice. So, yeah, and when it all clicks on that, it's calling you hardwood. <laughs> but it's right, this is the first one. The first heresy of today. And my three heresies have come within Christianity, within Christendom. They haven't come from outside, they've come from within. The first one is biblical Inerrancy and literacy. This is the heresy that the Bible is not completely true, not completely literate, and it's not the word of God, word be word. This teaching comes from our liberal corner of Christianity. And as Pastor said this morning, rightly, this came in the, started in the 18th century, which was in response to the Enlightenment. 
this age of science and reason. And supposedly science and reason which overlooked Europe disproved the Bible historically, scientifically and logically. Supposedly. And Christianity needed a response. And sadly, this was their response. That the Bible is not literally true. The events probably didn't happen like the Bible says. But that's what's not important. What's important is, is the message within the Bible. Like what's the Bible trying to say? Namely, that he's a God transcendent out there. We might not know him. We couldn't know him. But we should just live morally within the world. This is the big liberal movement at that time. And I'm paraphrasing here, but you know, you get the gist that we can't really trust the Bible. We know that there must be God. What's the implication? We just live morally. You see, when challenged mentally or emotionally, the liberal section crumbled and decided to sacrifice the truth of the Bible for the compromise of the knowledge of the world. That movement started in Germany over 200 years ago. I bet we could go to 10 churches tonight where that's taught. And our denominations where that's taught. I've met people. I've even taught, been taught by, at Bible college, people who teach this, who believe this. And I was sat in an Old Testament class, and the Old Testament professor believes this. And this was my reaction to it. If some of the Bible is true and some is not, I wish to know how you decide what is true and what is false. And based on what you don't know and what you might not know, how can you tell me what message it's conveying? And quiet descended on the classroom. And I never got asked to, to ask another question again. See, the false teaching that the Bible is not true Well, not all of it, at least, is the biggest danger to us today. And I'll tell you why. Because everything else stands on that the Bible is true. We throw out one verse, we might as well throw the lot out. And I know, and I get, and I understand when we read scriptures that are uncomfortable, that are not right, that are not nice it's so easy to sacrifice that to satisfy our emotion we need to stand firm and not compromise we must protect the bible it is the word of god eternally and truly literally what it says happened no compromise my second heresy is universalism. This teaching is one that is growing with alarm. 
in Christianity with such proponents like Tony's friends, Rob Bell. <laughs> this teaching, this is its teaching. If God is love, he cannot therefore send anybody to hell. That's just not fair. So God must let everybody into heaven and everybody will just find their own way there. Salvation's for all. Nobody is destined for hell. Once again, our emotions can get the better of us. And when you do read the Bible, it's hard. The many nights I've wept and said, Lord, you cannot take my family to hell. You can't, can't, can't. I don't care whether they believe or not. You can't, can't, can't. And I'm sure many people in this room have had broken hearts over that. But somebody said, ours is not to reason why, it's just to do or die. I understand the turmoil in us when we read some scripture that we cannot understand God's plan. My reason, my emotion, my knowledge, my capacity will never understand. And I'd rather wrestle with myself and be broken than to change scripture. I'd rather sacrifice myself than to sacrifice the truth of scripture. Why is this so dangerous? It seems okay, doesn't it? Everyone's going up there. Seems good. But it goes against scripture. You see, it reduces the sacrifice of Christ as a mere act, a mere folly, a man on a stage with no real meaning behind it. No purpose behind it. It's a show. It renders the gospel useless. The very thing Jesus said he came to do, to proclaim, no point in it. You do not need to accept Christ as a saviour. Why even send him in the first place? But we know scripture tells us, Paul says it clearly, unless you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that the Lord Christ died, rose. We know that Paul is clear on this. You know, the proponents of universalism usually stay away from Paul. They want to stick with Jesus. I don't understand that. I think Jesus is a lot harsher than Paul. When I read Jesus, I honestly believe that. He said, you want to see the Father? Mm-mm, God come through me. Saying this to Jews of doing everything right that God's commanded them. That should be automatic. He's like, no. I think Jesus is a lot harder. Jesus tells himself, unless you come to me and I die, no one's getting in there. Universalism is the new ip doctrine of Christianity. The coolest thing to do. 
You teach that, you'll get your own DVD series along with it. You'll pack churches out everywhere. But it's wrong. It is wrong. You teach somebody that, you're leading them straight to hell. You teach somebody they don't need Jesus Christ. I hope on the day of judgment you're stood next to that person. Because they're going to say to you, why didn't you tell me the truth? My last... My last editor, the historical Jesus. Once again, we have to thank the 18th century in Germany for this. But there's been three, what we call, major quests for the historical Jesus. Again, they started in Germany with liberal theology as a direct result from enlightenment. And this is its premise. The real and accurate accurate Jesus from the Gospels. It's what they want to do. They want to find the real and accurate Jesus from the Gospels. Sounds fair. Sounds a good start. But this is the problem. They didn't believe in supernatural. They didn't believe in the divinity of Jesus. They only accepted his humanness. They only accepted the sayings of Jesus that were in more than one gospel. So they took out all the miracles. They took out the divinity. They took out most of his sayings. And they've said, this is the true Jesus. A human Jesus with no divineness in him. They strip him back and we say we do a historical examination. If he is not divine, he is not God. If he is not God, then redemption was not achieved. If redemption was not attained, then we are all lost. You probably think that is absurd. Try to find the real Jesus like that. And when you come up with this Jesus, this mere man of history, this good teacher, had a few friends, did good things, but that's all he was. But you're thinking, that's bizarre, we can't. That can't be a danger to us today. I mean, no, no one believes Jesus is Lord like this church. Or Christianity would feel. I'll tell you the outworking of it. You see, because when you go for the historical quest for Jesus, you start to take Jesus out of the picture. Because he's not important. He's not valuable. He teaches us some good things, but he's not God. No divinity in him. And you start to remove Jesus from the picture. And you, I was in the church in Bradford not so long ago. And I kept hearing all through the preach, all through the worship songs and all through the prayers about the Father's love. The love of the Father. The Father's love. Nothing wrong with that. I heard it on the night time. So I started to look into this sort of 
church. And what I soon realised and found quickly is that Jesus is nowhere in the picture. That Jesus is literally taken out of the picture. And I thought, how have we got to this point where what's more important is this connection with the Father's love and Jesus disappeared. And I thought, well, I know where it is because we don't need Jesus no more. He's just a good man. He's just a good teacher. He don't belong in our church. He isn't God. He ain't the one to be worshipped. He ain't the one that's going to cast judgment on us all. He... See, this stance openly cuts Jesus out of the picture. No need for him. And I'm telling you, this is a growing thought and theology in today's Christianity. But let me tell you, we can only know the historical Jesus if we understand him as God. He was God, then became man. He wasn't man, then became God. You cannot understand Jesus without understanding him as God, as divine, as the miracle worker, as the one who paid the price. And these historical deductive detective methods ultimately will remove Jesus from the church. All these heresies started in Christendom and continue strongly. Brothers and sisters, these are the wolves among the sheep. Five, ten minutes more, then I'm done. So what's the antidote? What's the antidote for you and me to protect ourselves against false teaching and false teachers? What do you think Pete's answer is? Knowledge. Pete, in 2 Peter, he uses knowledge 16 times in three short chapters. But knowledge of what? Well, at the end of chapter 3, he tells us the knowledge of Jesus. He says, only knowing Jesus truly and knowing his teachings and knowing his mission can one defend, resist and repel false teachers. But how do we know the true Jesus? Well, we do what the heresies, the false teachers tell us not to do. We go back to the Bible and we uphold it as the word of God. You see, even the apostles knew that none of us are clever enough to guess the right doctrine about Jesus. They knew we'd never guess it. So they wrote four Gospels, one historical book, one prophetic composite and 21 letters, just so we knew and we didn't get it wrong. And only by reading the Bible and taking it as God's word, believing it to be true in every sense, can we truly know the correct doctrine and dispel lies? <coughs> you know, if you want to come to church on a Sunday service, and that's the only time you read the Bible, it's estimated you'll only read 5% of the Bible a year. 5%! So, I reckon 
what, maybe 20 minutes at Bible? 10 minutes max gets read on a Sunday in church. 10 minutes. What are you doing for the rest of six days, 23 hours and 50 minutes? I tell you what you are doing. You're hearing heresies and false doctrines about Christ. Whether it's from within the church or outside the church, you have been told Jesus Christ is not the man in the Bible. We had a great evening the other night here regarding Islam. What's Islam's major teaching? Jesus is not who your Bible says it is. Atheists, I'll tell you, Jesus is not who the Bible says it is. Everyone is telling us Jesus is not who the Bible says it is. Nothing different with the false teachers and heretics. Jesus is not who he says he is. We must stand firm. We must stand against and we must stand together against false teaching and its teachers. It's sad to see that our Bible studies, the attendance does not represent the congregation. But I praise the Lord for those that do attend. You see, you will only stand the good fight till the end if you know your scriptures and this, and by this, you will know Jesus. We'll finish with a quick story. There once was a cunning wolf who had his eyes on a flock of sheep. But the wolf knew that to devour a sheep, he must get them on their own, one at a time. But he also knew that when he went near them, they would recognise him as a wolf. They would come together and bar, and the shepherd would run. So he devised a plan that he would gather the wolf the sheep had lost. He would disguise himself and lure the sheep away one by one, claiming the grass is green on the other side of the hill. And one by one the plan worked. And soon the shepherd noticed the flock decreasing. Alarmed, he asked the sheep why and what was happening to the sheep. But the sheep didn't know why. Because they'd seen no danger. But green grass and other sheep. The shepherd was wiser than the wolf. And he says to the sheep, unless you hear my voice, you don't follow any other voice. No matter what mouth it may come from. The sheep then promising the shepherd went out to pasture again. And again the wolf came to the sheep trying to entice the sheep away claiming the greener grass is over the hill. Although it looked like the sheep and the armless sheep obeyed their shepherd and refused saying we will only listen to our keeper. Thus the wolf was unable to lure the sheep away and he knew he could not attack them when they were in the park because they were safe. But every day in his single-minded persistence he tried the same trick 
And he grew tired and he grew weary, trying to lure the sheep away. And his persistence and determination to keep the sheep led him to forget about himself. And growing weak, too weak to find another flock, the wolf succumbed to fatigue and eventually died. For the wolf could only feed off those sheep who listened and obeyed. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight. Lord, we ask you that you will protect our leaders and teachers. This goes for Sunday school, for the Bible teachings, for the pastors. Lord, protect us when we witness and we share about your love. Protect us that we, we, we speak right and correctly. Protect our minds, Lord. Lord, protect this flock. Give us discernment and wisdom to protect the flock. Lord, give us discernment and wisdom to know a heresy and a false teacher when we see him. Lord, let us never forget the truth of the Bible. Of that cross when we severe. in humbleness and humility and love and worship, we come to your throne tonight, Lord, and say thank you. Bless us as we go from here. In your son's name, amen. <laughs>